This is the show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. I hope you're having a great week as we go into Sunday, the solemnity of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Now, technically, we're in ordinary time right now, but you wouldn't know it by Sundays because we we came through the Easter season. We had the, the ascension of Jesus into heaven where we were given the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples. And then we, on oh, on Pentecost, we experienced the, um, the pouring out of God's Spirit upon us. And through that, having the, the, the spiritual empowerment to actually go out and live that Great Commission. And then right there, Pentecost, we entered into ordinary time. However, you get to the next Sunday and it's like, oh, well, not quite, not yet. It's now the solemnity of the Holy Trinity, the Most Holy Trinity. And then we have another week of ordinary time. And then, oh, just kidding. Uh, now it's the solemnity of the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So here the, the church is kind of weaning us off of this festive season by going from uh, Easter and then kind of weaning us off and giving us a couple of more solemnities as we enter into the fullness of ordinary time. And this is such an interesting feast because this is a feast specifically celebrating the fact that we have a sacrament, right? We are celebrating the Eucharist even as we are celebrating the Eucharist. Now, that makes this an interesting year um, because in many places, we're still not back to normal as it relates to being able to celebrate Mass together. Um, Here, this is our first week back to Mass up in the Pacific Northwest, and we're really excited about it here in our household uh, that we, again, we were able to secure uh, reservations because that's a new thing, Um, putting in a reservation to be able to go to Mass. But we've done that, and we've got our uh, our whole pew that we're going to take up because that's the way that we roll in our family. And we're going to come in, and we're going to be able to, again, receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Really, actually, the body, blood, soul, and divinity, but only under one species because we are still in the midst of quarantine. So um, we're going to be able to do that again for the first time in a long time. Now, I've, I've of course— been helping with the live stream. So I've been able to receive, um, throughout this time, but my family hasn't, and they are so stoked to be able to go back and to celebrate this beautiful sacrament together. But even though we are back, and of course there's, there's going to be no shortage of celebration. Uh, and that's, I don't mean to say this next part to, to take away from that, but it will be a different celebration this year because there's so much that is different. Firstly, we're not going to be able to gather with our whole community because uh, we still have to have these social distancing requirements. And so there's, it's going to feel a little empty as we're all going to be spread out in the, in the church. Uh, Secondly, um, there's, we, we're not going to be able to have incense and this is a big solemnity. I mean, this is the day that you just kind of do it upright. You've got a sequence that's there between the second reading and the gospel uh, you've got all the incense, and you just fill the church up with smoke. Um, but for many people, 
incense leads to coughing. And in normal days, we just kind of say, well, this is liturgy, and your participation in liturgy apparently is coughing this week. <laughs> but we can't do that right now because coughing is kind of that no-no symptom that um, that puts a lot of people on edge. And so in order to preserve the common good and to preserve goodwill towards one another, there won't be incense, which is very sad. Uh, there's, Of course, we're only receiving under one kind, we're receiving the host and not the chalice. And that's that's a little sad for many people. And uh, the biggest thing, the biggest bummer to me is that we also are unable to do our Eucharistic procession. This is the day where we take Christ into the streets by putting the consecrated host in the Luna, in the monstrance, and walking outside in public where people could look at us and point and think what is going on there and carry Christ out into the world. And of course, we're not able to do that uh, this year because of the restrictions on gathering. So it's a different year, but it's given me a lot to think about. How do we celebrate the body and the blood of Jesus Christ at a time like this when everything is so different. How can we take Christ tangibly into the world in a way that um, that is impactful and that is meaningful and that makes a difference uh, in, in the same way that we attempt to do with our Eucharistic processions? And it got me thinking a lot, specifically about this phrase, Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. What does this mean for us as we recognize it and celebrate it. Well, the first thing is, and I believe the reason for this solemnity, is the recognition that Christ is present with us in a tangible way. He's not just saying, oh, I'm going to ascend into heaven and and now you're going to have good interior feelings and you're going to have your warm fuzzies and that's how you're going to know I'm there. He knows, because he made us this way, that we are body-soul composites. We're not just a spirit that kind of resides inside of a body, we experience the world through our bodies. We come to know reality through our bodies. And so Christ, in his love and his compassion and in his wisdom, has given us sacraments, intangible things, so as to convey to us his grace. And of course, the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our faith. It is the the highest sacrament that we can receive. Uh, It's the sacrament from which all things come and to which all things go. So, Christ has given us this tangible means of knowing he's with us. He is present with us. We know this, and this has been kind of hammered home to us in the midst of this quarantine. Christ is present to us. He's present to us when we are in our homes, when we are doing, uh, you know, if, if you've done watched a live stream mass or you've done some family devotions together, Christ is present to you there. And we can make these spiritual communions, these extraordinary ways that Christ comes and makes himself known to us. But we also know that there is something significant about the tangible expression and experience of Christ's presence. This is the reason he gives us the Eucharist, so that we can have this tangible expression. It's the reason that we go and sit face-to-face with a priest, and we can't do confession over uh, the phone, because there is this incarnational uh, flesh-and-bone, tangible 
touchable reality to our faith that um, our spirit and soul need to experience together because we are spirit and soul composite. So, as I've been sitting here trying to figure out what it means for us to celebrate the feast, the solemnity of the body and blood of Jesus Christ here in this year where so much is different, I've been sitting and ruminating with this phrase, the body of Christ. And of course, we see the body of Christ pop up in a couple of places, uh, not the least of which is in the, the writings of Paul and the epistles, where he says that we are the body of Christ. And I've been kind of sitting with this because when I grew up Protestant, that was the conception of the body of Christ. When, when you heard that phrase, the body of Christ, the thing that came into your mind was the church. This was the picture that we had uh, growing up. And of course, now that um, I've become Catholic and, and we're raising the kids Catholic and the conception that they have when they hear the body of Christ is the Eucharist and myself as well as I've come to, uh, to acclimate to this reality. But what if these were not mutually exclusive? What if Christ was present to us in a very real and intangible way through the Eucharist? And what if Christ is present to us and to the world through the very tangible and visible expression of the church? Is it possible for us to celebrate this Feast of Corpus Christi in a way that does not diminish the Eucharist, but recaptures some of what it means for us and our identity to be the body of Christ? Uh, this is something I've resisted for a very long time because I've always taken those who emphasize the presence of the body of Christ as the church, uh, specifically within a Catholic context, to in some way be diminishing the importance and the role of the Eucharist. But what if that's not the case? What if instead of trying to diminish the role of the Eucharist, we begin to elevate our understanding of the church? The church as the mystical body of Christ, this mystical, mysterious, sacramental uh, understanding of the church is something that I think we need to wrestle with. And again, I'm not saying that you need to come to one conclusion or the other, but let's at least sit with this idea and, and ruminate on it. Think about it. What would it mean for us to be the body of Christ in a similar way to how the Eucharist is the body of Christ. So, for instance, with the Eucharist, the common elements of bread and wine through the power of the Holy Spirit and the prayer of the priest are consecrated and they change in their essence, right? The, the, the accidents, these properties that make them what they are, uh, that we tend to think make them what they are, they remain, right? The host is still made uh, physically, of wheat and water. The, um, the wine, the, the chalice, is still comprised of fermented grape. And yet, by the prayer of the priest, the isness, the essence, the substance of what that thing is in the, in the philosophical language, the, the very thing that makes the thing the thing has now been 
transubstantiated, not transformed because the form hasn't changed. The substance has changed. Transubstantiated into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ to where the being of bread no longer exists, though the wheat and water remain. The the being of wine no longer remains, though, uh, though the ferment, the, the, the alcohol and the grape are still in there. So now we have this transubstantiated presence that conveys all of Christ's grace to us. Now look at us, the church. We are common elements, but we have been filled with the Holy Spirit by the prayer of the high priest, Jesus himself. We have been made into new creations. We're made to the same stuff. We have the same history and the same past. We have the same genetics, but something is fundamentally different. Our isness, the thing that makes us who we are, has been transubstantiated. We, now filled with the Holy Spirit, are ambassadors. We, now filled with the Holy Spirit, are adopted sons and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. We now have a new identity and a new being. We are new creatures, and our purpose is to be in relationship with God the Father and to go out into all the world and make disciples, to make Christ present to the world around us. In this way, we share some commonalities with the Eucharist and ought to take some time today to think about what that means for us. So to talk about this on the show today, I've brought along a friend of mine. Uh, We've had him on the show numerous times before, and he's kind of my go-to guy when I'm wrestling with something that I'm not sure I completely understand, and I think the direction I'm going is a direction that I'm not terribly comfortable with. He always pushes my boundaries a little bit, uh, theologically, always has. It's a nice way of saying that I push your buttons. No, 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 my boundaries, my boundaries. Oh, okay, okay. (laughs) We're talking today with Charles Beard. He's a a deacon candidate for the Diocese of Tulsa. We were in the aspirancy together, and uh, you, you persisted, and it just shows how long I've been away because next year, uh, God willing and the Bishop willing. No, no, it's, it's, it's in, uh, is it this four year? Weeks? Oh yeah. July, goodness. July 18th. God well, willing. And it was supposed, it was supposed to have been last week, uh, but it got delayed because of, because of COVID. Yeah. Uh, I, I was deeply grateful that it was delayed because my first homily would have been on Trinity Sunday, which is, <laughs> Not a good idea. There's only so much trouble you can get into when you're preaching for the first time on the 16th Sunday in ordinary time. Right. Um, you know, when you're preaching for the first time on Trinity Sunday, it could be, it's your first homily and it could be your last. <laughs> <laughs> so one of the things that I, I love about you, Charles, is you have a, a deeply empathetic view of the world. Uh, you work with a Catholic worker. You uh, have been involved in in charity work, not only with Catholic charities, but just just out of the benevolence of your own heart. I, Kristen and I were t- talking just this last week uh, with the kids, and your name came up, and they're like, oh, they used to come and watch us. And of course, you and your wife came and uh, thought that I, as the director of Family Life, uh, ought to be having date nights with my wife. And of course, we have a billion children, so that never happened. But y'all made <laughs> that possible. Um, and I, I bring that up just to talk about your generosity of spirit and the way that you view the world uh, for the sake of others. 
And so I want to talk about that because I think that that's central to this idea that I'm, I'm ruminating on of how we celebrate the body of Christ this year uh, as both a celebration of Christ's sign to us and his gift to us in the Eucharist where he gives us himself and Christ's sign to the world and his gift to the world of the church as he makes himself manifest to them through that body of Christ. So I'm kind of struggling and in, in, in wrestling with uh, how to balance these two and how to celebrate this year, Corpus Christi, with, uh, with a mind toward being the body of Christ as a result of our having received the body of Christ. Okay. Um, well, that's a big topic. Uh, what, what kind of comes to mind initially is you, you were talking about how we were in, we were in Aspirancy together in formation, and uh, I believe we had our first liturgy class together. Mm-hmm. And the, there was a it was, it was we, we said it as a joke, but it turns out it wasn't really a joke. It was you know in liturgy, what is the answer to what does this represent? You know, and that's the baptismal font or the altar or the candle or the gospel or the Eucharist. Or, you know, what does this thing represent? And the answer is always Jesus in liturgy. Um, Jesus is always the answer, in, you know, both in life and in liturgy. Um, so when, when the, the deacon or the priest proclaims the gospel, the, the, the deacon or the priest is, is, is Christ proclaiming the gospel in that moment. And he, the proclamation of the gospel is Christ. Mm-hmm. And the people to whom he is proclaiming it, the, the assembly, is Christ. So Christ proclaims Christ to Christ. Um, when we talk about the Eucharist, that's the that's the highest and the best and the the most intimate version of of that type of presence. But is it is not the only type of it is not the only way in which Christ is present. I want to be very careful here because you get you are inherently talking about symbols when you're talking about sacraments. Right. Um, I don't want to accidentally say the Eucharist is a symbol. So if anything I say sounds like that, then either I'm saying it wrong or you're hearing it wrong. <laughs> um, uh, it, 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 is a, it is a sign, an outward sign of, of something that is very deeply present, that is really, truly there. When we talk about these other types of signs, Christ is not less present in those other signs. Mm-hmm. Um, so when when we talk about the church being the body of Christ, it is every bit as much the body of Christ as the Eucharist is. Um, the, the, the problem, if you like, with Protestant theology of the Eucharist isn't that it uh, puts too high a value on the presence of Christ in, in the assembly or in the church, um, but that it puts too low a a, a premium on the presence of Christ in the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. We don't want to make the opposite mistake by saying Christ is so much present in the Eucharist that he can't possibly be as present in these other ways. Yeah. He is so present in the Eucharist and therefore is also so present in the, in, in the assembled people or in the, the priest or the deacon or in the proclamation of the gospel. Um, when we're talking about a dispersed church, like we sadly have, we can take that presence of Christ with us so that when a family is saying the rosary together, Christ is present 
every bit as much as he is in the Eucharist in the recitation of that rosary. He is not less present there. The same, the same God who spoke and and created the cosmos is the same God who said, uh, "This is my body." Who is the same God who said, "Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, I am there in their midst." Right. Right. And so, uh, I, I'm looking at this, looking at the Eucharist a little bit more as source and summit. We go to the Eucharist, and not summit as in our highest place to be, although there is certain uh, a certain element of that in it, but rather it is our our destination, that to which we aim, mm-hmm. and that from which we go. Uh, and so Eucharist is source and summit is that we are nourished by Christ's presence and his promise of continued presence, but we are nourished for a purpose. We're not nourished so that we can get to the mountaintop and stay there and and look at it and enjoy that forever. We're nourished with the Eucharist so that we can fulfill the Great Commission to go and do all the world. And to do that not just by proclaiming the words of the gospel, but by embodying the gospel, by incarnating the gospel, by being the incar the, the next incarnation of Christ in in to the world not in a not in a way that suddenly you're going to become divine and and eternal and eternally begotten of the father but that we are now the physical tangible manifestation of christ to the world that's around us i i have a friend who's is real involved in in charismatic uh prayer which is really really not my thing um but and he said something to me once. He, he actually says it a lot now, but I think he says it to me a lot now because it bothered me so much the first time. Um, <laughs> Man after my own heart. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, he, he said to me, uh, quoting from Revelation 4, that uh, the, the one whom Christ loves will sit on the throne with me. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's, so he says to me, when in heaven, in the, you know, when at the consummation of all things, the only difference between you, Timothy, and me, Charles, and Jesus, not just Jesus, but God the Word, mm-hmm. is that he always existed and we didn't. Um, in every other sense, we will be Christ. We will be, uh, we will be God the Word. You know, the, the Athanasius says God became man so that man can become God. Um, so when we receive the Eucharist, that that is a pledge, that is the beginning process of becoming Christ mm-hmm. in that way, so that we can then do, as you say, to go out and be Christ in the world. Um, and because the, the answer is always Jesus, when we go as Christ into the world, we then find Christ already present in the world mm-hmm. and continue to, to make that more obviously present in so- the many things that we do. So let's let's start right there. Um, as I've okay. been kind of contemplating this idea of how in this in this age of division, in this age of um, animosity, lack of peace, and isolation, both from one another uh, by ideologies and from each other based on just social distancing, um, looking at this picture of living out the works of mercy the spiritual and the corporal works of mercy as an efficacious sign of Christ's presence to the world and encountering Christ 
just as we do in the Eucharist, but in a Matthew 25 way, in the least of these. And this goes back to everything's Christ. I mean, the, we receive Christ in the Eucharist, we we convey Christ as the body of Christ, and we meet Christ in the poor. Uh, yeah, blessed Frederick Ozanam. Um, I've, I've probably mentioned him on your show before. Uh, he, he was the founder of the Society of St. Vincent de Paul. Um, and, and he talked about the, like, almost going to adoration with the poor. Not, not, with, not bringing the poor to adoration, but, like, adoring God in the poor, the same way you would adore God in the Eucharist. Um, he said that, that when, you, when you encounter the poor, you should fall at their feet and say, you are my Lord and my God. Which again is one of those things that you don't really like to hear because we're so used to those things only in a sacramental context. Right. But but Frederick Ozanam had a a, a sacramental whole worldview where he could take that sac that that sacramental context, that liturgical context, and bring it bring it into everything else. I'm not going to attempt to to name the saint because I will forget it or I will just pull a name out of the air and it will be wrong. But one of the saints that I have uh, read about in their in their biography over this past year, it says when you when you are interrupted in your prayer to go serve the poor, you leave God for God. As in, that we, really that's that's going to bug me because I read that too and I don't remember who said it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know when when we're when we're doing our, our things of piety. And we are yeah. called away from those things and into service. We leave God, but we leave God to go serve God. We leave God for God. Yes. Uh, my my seven year old is getting getting ready to get confirmed. Uh, I guess next Sunday, Man a alive. week from a week from Sunday. What? Man alive! I can't believe he's seven. Yeah, I I, I, I can't believe it either. Um, but. Uh, but we were talking about the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit and, and piety is one of those. Um, but it's, but there are others and I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to name them all right now, but, uh, but fortitude and apparently look them you up are- in your Baltimore catechism, <laughs> look them up in your Baltimore catechism people, but they all come from the same Holy Spirit. And so at, at a certain point, the difference between them begins to break down. Mm-hmm. And in just the same way, the difference between Christ in the Eucharist, Christ in the poor, Christ in your family, Christ in your enemy begins to break down. They are all Christ. And and perhaps the best way to say it is this. The closer we get to Christ in the Eucharist, the closer we get to Christ in the poor, the closer we get to Christ in our family, the more the distinctions between Christ begin to disappear. Right. Um, and that, that that's, I think, how you overcome some of these you know, ideological tensions on one hand or, or social isolation. If everything is Christ, you're never alone. And if everything is Christ, uh, nobody can be your enemy. Uh, that may be what he meant when he said, love your enemies. I don't know. Mm-hmm. We're talking today with Charles Beard. He's a soon to be a deacon, ordained a deacon later uh, mid-July for the Diocese of Tulsa. We're talking about celebrating the body of Christ and specifically how we can find Christ in our neighbor, recognize him in our neighbor. When we come back, we're going to look at some specific ways we can do that, focusing on the works of mercy. Join the ongoing conversation over at facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. And we'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L., and we're talking today as we tomorrow are celebrating the solemnity of the body of Christ, Corpus Christi. Uh, We're talking with Charles Beard about experiencing and encountering Christ uh, in all the various myriad ways that we can. This is not a way of trying to somehow diminish the Eucharist, because the Eucharist is the source and the summit of our faith but rather for us to begin to see Christ everywhere, for us to see Christ in the poor, to see Christ in our neighbor, to see Christ within the body of, uh, of Christ, the, the church, and to begin to encounter him in all of his fullness, in all of the ways that we can. This isn't to say that the Eucharist is unimportant. It's to say that the Eucharist is meant to be carried out into every aspect of our life and for us to experience the fullness of God's presence, who promised, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, for us to know that that Christ is not a, a, a commodity that we go and receive. Rather, he is a companion with whom we live every moment of our life. And yes, there are moments where we experience him intimately in that communion of the Eucharist, but there are also moments where we experience him intimately in our communion with our neighbor. So we're talking today with Charles Beard, and Charles, I wanted to dig a little bit more into this specifically in maybe some practical ways that we can come to have almost, if not mystical experiences, through the works of mercy. And I think specifically of of Mother Teresa, who talked about uh, some of the poor being Christ in his most distressing disguise, and, and coming to really relish and welcome Christ in those uh, in those moments of experiencing him in the poor. Talk to me a little bit about some of uh, the ways that you have come to encounter Christ in those moments of service through the works of mercy. Poorly. I have come to encounter him poorly. Um, I, I, what I have tried to keep in mind in working with the poor, we, we, we run a, a small hospitality house for people either trying to get out of homelessness or sliding into homelessness. Um, and so there's a wide variety of folks who, who, who come through, um, some of whom are, you know, function very well and just are a little down on their luck, waiting on disability to get approved, that sort of thing. Um, and, and others, uh, you know, either severely mentally ill or, um, or they're, overcoming an addiction or not overcoming an addiction as the case may be. Um, so, and if everyone is, if, if Jesus is in everyone, if I'm supposed to find Christ in all of these people, I have to find a way to kind of lug Christ into every situation with this enormous diversity, mm-hmm. um, where the only commonality is sometimes I find them irritating. Uh, and so how do I do that? Um, I, I, I have. I, I try to do that by thinking of the life of Christ um, when I'm in one of these conversations with the where the conversation is uncomfortable or um, or we need to have a hard talk or something like that. Sometimes it's easy. We had a woman come through. There's in Tulsa a, a really excellent house called Madonna House for um, for women for pregnant women and their um, you know, in their children. Um, 
and uh, there was a woman who was going to go to Madonna House, but there was a there was a, a small gap where they weren't quite able to take her. So so she stayed with us for the weekend. She was pregnant. She had a four month old baby. It was really easy to find Christ in that situation, um, partly because she only stayed for the weekend, um, and partly because you know she had the baby. So here's Mary. Here's Christ. You know yeah. this is this is what it's all about. Um, so sometimes you, you think to yourself, where is Christ in this moment? Well, if someone's, you know, turning over tables, well, this is Christ in the temple. Even if, even though Christ had a very righteous and just reason for turning over the tables in the temple, and this person doesn't, mm-hmm. they are in their own mind, the hero of their own story. So they at least think they have a just reason for, for overturning the tables. And so I can begin to see Christ in this person by finding that moment in Christ's life where they were at least experiencing a similar emotional state. And then I can build on that. Uh, and sometimes, sometimes it's Christ on the cross. Yeah. Uh, we had a woman who, uh, who, who had been a victim of, of, of human trafficking. Um, and we got her in touch with law enforcement because they were more equipped than we were to, um, to, to deal with the matter. Um, and she was not ready to speak with law enforcement. They were, you know, she, she had found police less than helpful in the past. Um, but we were required by law, not by law, but by the rules of the, of the place that she was going to, uh, to get her in touch with law enforcement. So we had to do that. And we, we sprung it on her. We handled it badly. And so she was ready to start running. And so, uh, I looked at the crucifix in our, in our chapel and I said, don't let her come down on the cross, off the cross. Keep her on the cross there with you. Because when she, if she dies on the cross with you, that's how she begins to resurrect. Yeah. It was a Holy Spirit moment because when I pray, I, I'm not very eloquent. Um, but that was a good prayer. My spiritual director told me. I was like, oh, oh yeah, that was a good prayer. <laughs> um, so, but, uh, and, and that... Where, where can I find Christ in this woman right now? Well, she is, she is suffering just as Christ was suffering on the cross. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of how I'm able to take the Eucharist with me into this work. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I look at this and finding Christ in, in the person who is difficult or in the people who are different than us. Um, I think it's not something that we can do. uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, It's not something that can be done just off the cuff, right? This is something that takes from hearing your experience and, and mine as well, something that takes intentionality and practice. And it's not the kind of thing that we can say, okay, today, for, uh, for this five minutes, I'm going to find Christ in my neighbor. I'm going to be Christ to the world. And then, uh, and then tonight I've got other things on the docket, and then tomorrow we'll see what happens. I mean, there, in order to, uh, to see Christ in our neighbor, Christ in the church, uh, and Christ in the poor, we have to attune our eyes, just like kind of waking up in a dark room. You have to get used to uh, to that level of light to be able to see clearly. It's not something that you can just turn on and off. And so it takes uh, 
getting close to Christ in every way possible. If you can go to adoration, go to adoration. But if you can serve the poor, uh, do that as well to see Christ in every light and in every place um, in order for us to really, I think, fully fully see him in all his glory. I, th- I think for most of us, we kind of have to do a little bit of both, as it were. Um, some people have have particular vocations, and I, I, I don't want to discount that. But I think, mm-hmm. at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, uh, if if you try to to serve, whatever that service looks like, your family, the community, whatever, if you do that without having a sacramental life, without uh, staying close to Christ in the Eucharist, um, it's going to become... Uh, at worst, a competitive martyrdom, where you're, where you're, you're, you're thinking about how wonderful you are for doing all of these wonderful things. Um, at best, it'll become a kind of activism, um, which is not a bad thing by any means. But it's it's you're not finding Christ. It's in the person. You're then thinking about the issues, which is a different sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so you need you need to have the sacraments uh, in order to keep Christ in front of you when you're away from the sacraments. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, um, and on the other hand, if you if you have a sacramental life without going to serve in whatever capacity God has called you to serve, then it becomes you know navel gazing. Right. Um, you'll you'll eventually even stop adoring Christ in the Eucharist because you're um, you're meditating on your own self. You know, and and I I also don't want to sound maybe too harsh in that because. Um, you have to start somewhere. G.K. Chesterton said, and I've quoted this often, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Absolutely. You have to start somewhere. And so I don't mean that you have to do this perfectly, but I think that the more that we serve and the more that we, uh, we spend time in front of Christ in the Eucharist and the more that we, uh, we serve and give of ourselves to the body of Christ, the more readily we can begin to recognize Christ in those other places as well. Yes, start starting small um, and starting badly uh, is absolutely the way to do it because you're not going to do it well on this side of things ever. Mm-hmm. You're always going to there's always going to be more you could do. There's all you could always be praying better. And so if you say, "Well, I'm not doing it great," uh, you know, I skipped adoration this week, therefore I'm you know, what's the point even more anymore? Um, then you're then you're never going to start. Um, I will confess myself, my adoration hour is at 10 o'clock Friday morning. It is, I really need to change it because it's a terrible hour. And so I've skipped it like three weeks in a row. Um, in, in the, that doesn't mean that I then give up on the service that I do to the poor by any means. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the other hand, I will sometimes, I admit, dodge phone calls from people at the house because I don't want to talk to them at that particular moment in time. No one, um, no one who's listening now. No one, no one who's listening now. If you're listening right now, people at the Catholic Worker House, I always take your phone calls in a timely manner. Um, but uh, but that doesn't mean that I think that I that I give up. Yeah, yeah. And, well, and this goes back to the idea of source and summit. Um, we're not in some way Pelagian saying, "Well, I'm going to uh, by sheer force of will recognize Christ in the poor." Uh, I mean, the no. very very first thing to realize is that without Christ, we can do nothing. We need the graces of God to come and even help us to see the graces of God. 
Right. That's prevenient grace, as the theologians say. You need the grace before you even get, can even have the grace. So, uh, speaking of prevenient grace, the, the grace that goes before us, but then also goes before others before they encounter Christ, uh, we, as the body of Christ, called to be the sign, the efficacious sign to the world of Christ's presence, uh, have a commission to fulfill, right? To go into all the world, to make disciples, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I've commanded. We recognized this and celebrated this a few weeks ago at the Ascension. Uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit uh, that we recognized and celebrated at the Feast of Pentecost, uh, and indwelled by the Holy Trinity, become sharers in the divine nature, now have a responsibility uh, to, to go out and be that sacramental sign. And just before we talk, uh, before we started the, re- the recording here today, you talked about um, a specific quote that I want to jump back to uh, about how we share the gospel. Yes, uh, it's always a bit dangerous to to talk about books I haven't read yet, but a friend of mine reviewed a book uh, uh, about an Armenian bishop in Mosul, uh, what is now Iraq, uh, right after the Muslims came in and took over took over the town. And this and this bishop was saying, okay, so how do we evangelize these folks? Um, and the conclusion he came to was, uh, you know, arguments are only going to get you so far. Um, you know, it, it's good to have it's good to have reasons for the faith because the faith is rational. But most people, and particularly the people that he was surrounded by at that moment in time, this is probably the seventh or eighth century. Um, they're they're not going to be convinced by how shiny and, and brilliant your arguments are. They're going to be convinced by the power of Christ. And so in and so in his his conclusion was what we need are miracles. Yeah. And that's the one thing that like we, we can come up with an argument on our own. We can come up with a good argument on our own. Um, we can serve the poor decently well on our own. And we can even pray to an extent on our own. But the one thing we can't do is provide miracles on our own. We absolutely need the, the grace of Christ uh, to do that. And that's the grace of Christ is what begins and completes all work that we do, whether that's service, adoration, um, evangelization. Well, and just like with the the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, the miracle starts after the work begins, right? They, they, he blessed it and broke it and said, now go hand it out. And it was in the handing it out that God took the ordinary effort of the disciples and turned it into something miraculous. And I think the same is true for us as we go out and do the works of mercy that we might look at the work and say, well, this is nothing. I mean, this is just me going out and serving the poor. But it's in the action and in the obedience of Christ's call to us, that is where the miracle actually takes place, where Christ takes our efforts and multiplies them for the sake of the nourishment of the world. And in doing, going further than that, it's, you said the ordinary efforts of the, of, of the disciples. Uh, it was ordinary efforts that they knew weren't going to work. Like what they were doing was physically impossible and they had to have known that (laughs) and yet they did it anyway. And suddenly they've done something impossible. Uh, I kind of, I kind of chuckled to myself. Were were they going, Oh, well, we'll show Jesus. I mean, we're, we'll obey, but, or was there a sense of, 
I can't wait to see how God does this. And maybe on the first time, on the feeding of the 5,000, maybe they were one way. <laughs> and the feeding of the 4,000, they're like, wait a second, I've seen this before. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm stubborn enough, and I imagine it's, at least some of the disciples were stubborn enough to say, okay, there's no way this is happening twice. <laughs> oh, we've been talking today with Charles Beard. He's a deacon candidate for just a little bit longer for the Diocese of Tulsa, going to be ordained here in the middle of July. Uh, pray for him and pray for all of those who will be Please. ordained alongside him. Uh, and then to, to accompany your prayers, go out and serve the poor. Thanks for being with us today, Charles. Thank you, TL. Always a pleasure. If you missed any part of my conversation with Charles Beard or you want to share it with your friends, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And there's more to my conversation with Charles available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Each and every week we record an extra segment with a couple of extra questions uh, in gratitude for those who keep us on the air. If you'd like to join their numbers, just go over to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click the link in the top right-hand corner that says support the show hyphen Patreon. Follow the directions and get access to today's extra segment and all of the archives instantly. Let's turn our attention now to our reading from Scripture and Church History. That's our Verbum Library launching, and so now let's go ahead and turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 12, and the end of chapter 12, beginning of 13. Now you are Christ's body, and individually parts of it. Some people God has designated in the church to be first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then mighty deeds, then gifts of healing, assistance, administration, and varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work mighty deeds? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Strive eagerly for the greatest spiritual gifts. But I shall show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in human and angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clashing cymbal. And if I have the gifts of prophecy and comprehend all mysteries and knowledge, if I have faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I hand my body over so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous. It is not pompous. It is not inflated. It is not rude. It does not seek its own interests. It is not quick-tempered. It does not brood over injury. It does not rejoice over wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. If there are prophecies, they will be brought to nothing. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge it will be brought to nothing. For we know partially, and we prophesy partially. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I used to talk as a child, and think as a child, and reason as a child. But when I became a man, I put aside childish things. At present, we see indistinctly, as in a mirror. But then, face to face. At present, I know partially. Then I shall know fully, as I am fully known. So faith, hope, and love remain, these three. 
But the greatest of these is love. That reading comes from the end of 1 Corinthians 12 and goes through 1 Corinthians 13. And this is what I want to point out here. Um, First of all is this. We are members of the body. And what we do is not really the most important thing, right? It isn't important what our role is. What's important is whether or not we have the Holy Spirit in us, whether we embody these fruits of the Holy Spirit and live out these gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the greatest of these gifts is the gift of love, the ability to see the other person clearly and to see them as Christ is in them and to love them. The greatest of these is love. And it doesn't matter if we do all the right things if we have not love. It doesn't matter. And even even the sacraments will one day pass away because the sacraments are this veil that we receive in part. We receive the graces of God in part, in limited ways, through the gifts of these sacraments. Even as as fruitful as they are, uh, it's not as the same as when we will be fully in the presence of Christ, where we'll have no more need for signs, for efficacious signs though they be, because we will have the the presence, uh, the manifest presence of Christ in a way that the Eucharist could never be, right? When we are there face to face, the Eucharist will be redundant. But the body of Christ, the communion of saints, empowered by the Spirit, enlivened by the Spirit, this will not pass away. So, That's our reading from Scripture. I want to turn now and look at this beautiful passage, an excerpt from a book by Fulgentius of Ruspa. The spiritual building up of the body of Christ is achieved through love. As St. Peter says, like living stones, you are built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And there can be no more effective way to pray for this spiritual growth than for the church, itself Christ's body, to make an offering of his body and blood in the sacramental form of bread and wine. For the cup we drink is a participation in the blood of Christ, and the bread we break is a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, since we all share the same bread. And so we pray that by the same grace which made the church Christ's body, all its members may remain firm in the unity of that body through the enduring bond of love. We are right to pray that this may be brought about in us through the gift of the one Spirit of the Father and the Son. The Holy Trinity, the one true God, is of its nature unity, equality, and love and by one divine activity sanctifies its adopted sons. That is why Scripture says that God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he has given us. The Holy Spirit, who is the one Spirit of the Father and the Son, produces in those to whom he gives the grace of divine adoption the same effect as he produced among those whom the Acts of the Apostles describes as having received the Holy Spirit. We are told that the company of those who believed were of one heart and soul. 
because the one Spirit of the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is one God, has created a single heart and soul in all those who believed. This is why St. Paul, in his exhortation to the Ephesians, says that this spiritual unity and the bond of peace must be carefully preserved. I, therefore a prisoner for the Lord, he writes, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, with all humility and meekness, and with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit. God makes the church itself a sacrifice, pleasing in his sight, by preserving within it the love which his Holy Spirit has poured out. Thus, the grace of that spiritual love is always available to us, enabling us continually to offer ourselves to God as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to Him forever. That reading comes from an excerpt from a book by Fulgentius of Ruspa addressed to Monimus. And here we circle back around to something that we said at the very beginning, this idea that the body of Christ in the Eucharist, in the sacrament of the altar— and the body of Christ in the church are not pitted against one another, but rather they feed one another, right? We, as the body of Christ, are, are given the task of going out and making Christ present to a world that so desperately needs his healing. We, as the body of Christ, are called to go out in love and to make disciples of all nations, to be that, that visceral and tangible and visible presence of God in the world. And we are strengthened and grow in our spirits by offering the sacrifice of the Mass so that, Fulgentius would say, we can go out and make a sacrifice of ourselves. We are filled with the love of God, and then the love of Christ compels us to go and do that same thing. Go and do likewise. Yes, we receive Christ's full gift of himself to us so that we can go out and make a full gift of ourself to others. Just like Charles was saying earlier in the episode, that Christ is present in the altar, and Christ is present in the priest, and Christ is present in the church, and Christ is present in the world. Christ, who is priest and victim is also recipient and servant. Let us now, on this feast of the Corpus Christi that we celebrate tomorrow, this feast of the body of Christ, go forth and joyfully receive the body of Christ and go forth and joyfully be the body of Christ as we joyfully serve the body of Christ. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show. Today's show is brought to you by Anil Thomas and all of those who support the show through Patreon. I'd love to have you be a part of their numbers. Come over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, follow the directions, and get the extra segments and all the other goodies. Join the ongoing conversation at Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. Twitter the handles at OutsideTheWalls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.